welcome to the Show Up Podcast, a place where we explore leadership and how it's showing up for us in the world in which we work, and a space for you to explore what leadership means in your context, how you show up, how you turn up to be the best leader you can be in the world that you work in today. This week we explore, will having a king make a difference to men in this country? And come at that from the perspective of leaders and what that might mean for today's leadership and what today's leaders might want to consider. I'm not going to lie, we were all a little bit apprehensive going into this conversation because we recognise that this is a bit of an edge for all of us and for society in general today. And the role that gender plays in terms of leadership is where we tend to uh, go and explore, looking at traits and the characteristics that might be needed today. So bear with us and know that we're coming from a good place throughout the whole of this conversation. Well, good morning, gentlemen. How are you today? Good morning, Graham. Are we well? Give us a state of play in your landscapes today, fellas. I am struggling with a annoying ear infection, so I'm a bit deaf in my left ear. Say that again. But other than that, sorry. So what? Yeah, hey, yeah, the old ones are the best. <laughs> and it's my it's my son's birthday today, so that was a lot of fun this morning. So I'm sure. Oh, many happy returns to him. A red shiny bike, which is the appropriate present for an eight year old. Excellent. Happy birthday, Fantastic. to Derry's son. So, yeah, happy birthday. What's Jamie? his name? Max. Max, happy birthday, Max. And that's two Maxes that we've got amongst the fam- familial brood amongst us then. Mm. Fabulous. Um, I'm feeling great this morning. I actually told somebody earlier, I got up and this morning, for reasons I can't understand or explain, I've had a spring in my step. So I'm feeling great. Really, really enjoying the day so far. New trainers will do that for you. So. There you go. Is this the standard of jokes we're going to have for the whole I, th- I, I think we're just lightening our... I think we're lightening ourselves a little bit needed to. Yeah. So well, I can feel a good energy from you like all today. So, yeah. Yeah, I've just been out for a run. So very, very nice. Nice little 5K this morning just to shake the legs out. So it's all been very good. So, nice. and well, where are we going to go today? So well, we... <laughs> let, let's cards on the table. We're three men. Middle-aged, with some experience in the world. We're not saying we know everything. We're not saying we know nothing. We've just got some experience, and we've always got a curiosity to explore a little bit more. And to to give the listeners a little bit of background to what we do before we record these, we always sort of plan what things are present in our thoughts in the moment, big questions we could ask, areas that we're interested to explore as a group and, and learn a little bit more about. And... The, one of the questions that we wrote, we thought we'd start having a little bit of a tackle with today, which was, will having a king make a difference to men in this country? Now, before we get into this, chaps, is there anything we think we should say that sort of just helps the listeners or lets them know where we generally come from on a subject like this? Because I guess it could be quite sparking or triggering for some people. Yeah, I think that's a good question, Graham, and important that we do that. Uh, important to note as well that I think we're all feeling a bit nervous about having this conversation. Oh yeah, yeah. because we're because we're three men talking about masculinity, and then uh, objectively, like, why the hell would we would we be nervous about that? But we're conscious that it's very hard to talk about masculinity in the workplace without talking about gender roles, and we're very conscious that gender roles is an emotive topic. Um, I mean, where I, my kind of baseline on this is, uh, I tend towards equality of opportunity and that men and women on average and are very similar, but at the extremes have some differences and that lends them to being most effective in different roles. Um, and that's that's my maybe that's biased, maybe it's data driven. I don't know, but that's where I start from. Is uh, that we are we're not 
biologically predetermined to be the best at the same things. Thanks, Derry. Um, putting my cards on the table, I had the same level of anxiety and actually my wonderful wife um, slightly enhanced that. She just said, just be, be, just be aware of, you know, what the implications of some of the choices of topic you might explore around gender. Um, you guys are going to be representing to most people the male perspective on this, which while she knows that we're pretty open, tolerant and diverse in our thinking and our experience she said it's a really interesting landscape right now it's a in some cases because of what we described just there the triggers that some people have around this it's a bit of a minefield and um Derry, you sparked a thought in my head which was um as i started my professional career the idea of gender equality either through pay opportunity and so on and so forth was very much geared around male-female or rebalancing that male-female uh, imbalance that had existed for many uh, years, decades, and much longer. That's not even just the, the simple answer now. It's not just male-female that are part of the discussions uh, when we think about gender. So just want to make sure everybody's you know aware we're not going to be necessarily being able to explore all areas of a gender-related landscape. We can't represent necessarily perspectives from all parts of it, uh, but it it served to illustrate to me as I was thinking about it, getting set up, maybe that was the spring in my step, walking towards what could be potentially a minefield full of interesting complexity, but intellectually incredibly stimulating and, and within which I've, only, I've got my own personal and emotional um, connection. Uh, just this week, uh, talking to my uh, one of my son's uh, schools about how they're dealing with masculinity. Um, the presence of Andrew Tate as a media figure and the influence he's having on young men uh, young adults particularly um and equally then the uh, presence of schools trying to deal with the the consequences and the reaction to things like the me too movement and everyone's invited which has been far more focused on the educational environment in the uk so for me it's been a real interesting lead up to this session where i'm really intrigued where we might go I'm really intrigued what might come up, and I'm particularly intrigued, and I welcome um, uh, listeners to share their own thoughts and reactions, however they come across, and questions they have uh, once they've had a chance to listen to this. Appreciate that, Jamie uh, and Derry. Yeah, I I got to say I feel it right here in my heart, right now in my chest. I feel this a little bit of anxiety. I don't often feel it, and it's 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 interesting because. I remember being raised in a school environment and a home environment that um, welcomed people on their merits of who brought themselves to the table, no matter where they came from. And as the topic of you know, diversity and inclusion and equality in the workplaces become more prominent these days, the first thing I've had to overcome is, wow, that's a thing. It's a real thing and it makes a huge difference. And I should be more conscious about this because I, I learned not to see diversity, if that makes sense, from what comes to me. I learned to appreciate every single person on who they are, where they come from, their background is important in creating who they are. And that, I always feel makes me really tolerant of so many things. I've done um, assessments that say I'm really highly tolerant of other people's values and where they come from. I think it comes from that piece at the bottom, you know, bottom of my age type thing, the early years of my age. But it, I just noticed when I'm going to talk about it today, I'm a bit like, I don't even know what to say sometimes. And it makes me really, really nervous. So uh, cards on the table, that's where I'm at. So I might ask more questions because I'm really curious because I, I feel like you chaps have really explored this a lot more. But also I'm really curious to see um, where this takes me, where this takes us. So uh, that's a I think really, it is massively important. Massive. That's a really interesting angle, Graham, because I, I, similarly, I grew up feeling like I was accepting an understanding of of everybody um and where they were coming from but i think actually 
I was accepting of it, but I wasn't understanding where they were coming from. And one of the, I think one of the negative or more challenging outcomes of growing up accepting everybody is it's hard to see the experiences that other people have where they've interacted with people that haven't accepted them or tried to understand them. And the conversations I have now with friends who have examples of racist behavior, sexist behavior, et cetera, towards them that I'm completely blind to because I don't experience those things. Very occasionally I will see some overtly sexist behavior in a workplace, but it's very rare. But then I speak to people that are on the receiving end of that and it's much more common because they're actually experiencing it every day. So that is a, uh, I'm very conscious of that blind spot in my own experience and part of inclusion and trying to be inclusive is to always ask those questions and seek to understand, I believe. Yeah, I mean, I love the, the use of the word blind spot there. And I was thinking, yeah, there's definitely blind spots in my own experience. Um, not only outside of me, what have I not experienced that others have that I therefore can't associate or empathize with or just have no frame of reference around? And what am I blind to inside myself that has been inherited, nurtured, brought up through social circles, educational establishments that will pop out in somebody else's experience of me, that they go, do you realize that you have a prejudice or a bias towards X? I'm like, well, I've never really thought about it or no, I don't. And maybe I get defensive or maybe I just get curious, but there's that blind spot inside as well. Um, that unconscious level of conditioning that everybody has come from. Yeah, I definitely feel like I, I'm really receptive and open to hearing when people share their experience on these kind of things. Cause I'm really interested to know what, well, how has that affected you? What impact has that had? Cause it's had an impact that's, felt at many levels um and what what can i do to be supportive um encouraging and changing the story that they experience so they are welcomed into conversation and into a world where they're accepted because i think everyone should be accepted um and stuff like that there so if we bring it back to the question Will having a king make a difference to men in this country? So if we take where we are today, we are February 2023. Yeah. It's only been, and I might be wrong on the date, but about four months for most people from a UK-based background. And it's not just a UK-based thing. This is a global thing. It's only been four months where we have been under the leadership of a king under the old context. For the rest of us, that time before, we've been under the leadership of the Queen. And most living people only remember being led by a Queen in the UK. So what do you what comes up for you both when you first think of this idea of a king leading the country and what difference that could make? If I may, I'll jump in on that one. Um, and I'll start it with a difference. What is different, which uh, again came up in the conversation with my wife, was that um, she said symbolically for her as growing up as a, a young girl, having at the time a female head of state, the queen, and a female prime minister at the same time, was very formative in her belief of where she could get to in life. You know, it, they represented the very pinnacle of either constitutional or uh, legislative. She didn't use those words when she was five, but (laughs) she was like, my goodness me, if there's a queen and there's a prime minister who's a female, that means I could do anything here. And um, I therefore wonder whether um, not having a female head of state might alter people's perceptions if they are female or male about what's the, what's the, where's the, where's the limit? What's the sky limit as it were from a societal standpoint? Um, depending on which gender I am. And then on top of that, um, I've noticed shifts in certainly how it's portrayed in the media. I don't know so much about whether it's uh, my own experience. This is the blind spot bit. Is my experience of life uh, consistent with others where where I felt in my 
teens and early 20s, there was actually a much more uh, gender equality tolerance uh, in society um, than there is now. There's, there, there feels now, and it feels in the last few years, like there's been much more gender stereotyping. There's been much more animosity about gender roles. There's been perhaps a slipping back in some areas um, from what I felt uh, there was progress being made in. And therefore, I mean, this was this, although I don't think necessarily the king being there as opposed to the queen is going to shift the dial one way or another. It made me think, do figureheads of different genders represent something that uh, intrinsically inspires or limits people's beliefs about what is possible for them? How might that work in a, in a, in a corporate environment? You know, I work with uh, leaders of um, all gender identities um, and biological sexes, however you, however you would like to describe them. And I wonder whether beneath them or around them, um, uh, which gender they are or identify with uh, makes a difference to people. I think there's a really interesting thing there around that figurehead role and the how inspiring that is to women and that women historically have not had that many figureheads to look up to um what i'm sitting here wondering is is it the monarchy that provides that or is it the political establishment or the business establishment that most effectively provides that so that's one thing i'm pondering and you know, recently we've had a couple of female prime ministers who have broadly been a disappointment in uh, I mean, one was a Liz Truss was a complete disaster and not a not a role model for many women to look up to other than the fact that she got the job because when she was in the job she was a disaster um so that is almost a negative consequence so I'm sort of pondering like the roles of these these role models and uh, I had quite a lot of exposure when I was at Royal Mail to a female FTSE 100 CEO um, who lived a life that was very stereotypical FTSE 100 CEO and not very stereotypical female mother um, because those are the attributes required to get to that kind of kind of position. So there's the role of the role models in society for women, which I think is really interesting. My sense is that the role role models for men is less important because there are so many of them and so i wonder whether the presence of a king rather than a queen isn't necessarily adding anything to men but it's potentially taking something away from women as a role model but i don't yeah interested in your thoughts on that well you brought something up for me there about you say when you said around, you know, that's the traits of that role. And if we rewind it slightly a little and think about this context of a king or a queen. And I, rem I always remember the queen being referred to as she was the calm in the storm, always. And generations older than us recognizing that from a time, you know, post-war Britain time. And that seemed to have stayed throughout her whole career, that she wouldn't necessarily speak often, but when she did, everyone listened. So if we just, if we took gender out of it for a minute and took it into the context of leadership and the personality traits of leaders, what could we look at and what, I wonder whether this gives us a way of exploring rather than looking at it from a masculinity, femininity point of view, if we look at it from a leadership perspective and say, well, what traits do we notice in people? What traits might be there in the king that may be slightly different to his mother? I don't know. What do we think? Well, and from that work out whether the gender question actually is relevant or not. Or whether it does, is there something that isn't explained by the traits of the person, how they behave, how they show up? the influence they have by what they do and what they say that could potentially therefore be in that bucket of the rest of the implications the rest of the impact may be associated with perception or the reality of hmm. 
what they represent from a demographic standpoint. Because this might explain why men are more commonly leaders. It might give some things of what needs to be lent into by other parts, you know, by women and has been lent into women that's getting them into there. But then you look at things like, um, is, I've forgotten her name, the former New Zealand prime minister. Jacinda. Ahern. Jacinda. Yeah. You know, she did it differently and successfully in many people's eyes. So I don't know. What do you think? I, I think personality traits are incredibly important. What I'm sitting here with the nuance of that is there is a, a fairly well-established set of personality traits that mean you are more likely to get to a senior position in whatever organization you're operating in, particularly in the business world. Okay, what are they? Um, so if we're, if we're going to talk in terms of personality, so just to step back for personality for a sec, you, the way people think about personality or the way people can think about personality is you have traits and you have personality types. So when you're thinking about MBTI types or Jungian archetypes, for example, that's essentially a synthesized set of personality traits that are a bit easier to get your head around. The gold standard in terms of measuring personality uh, is the big five personality traits. So those are uh, extroversion, conscientiousness, agreeableness, openness to experience, and neuroticism. So the first four, you might term positive and neuroticism kind of goes the other way. Um, sometimes neuroticism is expressed as emotional stability to have it have the same polarity as the other four. Um, and other than IQ, so IQ is the number one predictor of workplace success, if we're using that as a proxy for getting into leadership positions. And I want to make this distinction between getting into leadership positions and being a good leader, because mm -hmm. not necessarily the same thing. Right. In terms of getting into leadership positions, the number one predictor is IQ. It's about a 25% correlation, which is relatively high in, in psycholo psychological terms. Below that, the primary predictor is agreeableness. And agreeableness is, if you're high in agreeableness, you want to uh, essentially to be liked by people. So you want to do things that are harmonious and enable you to be liked by people. So the second strongest predictor of workplace success from a personality perspective is being low in agreeableness. Basically, you're prepared to piss some people off to get where you want to get to. And the number one, the biggest difference in personality terms between men and women is agreeableness. So men are, on average, about one standard deviation less agreeable than women. So there are plenty of disagreeable women and there are plenty of agreeable men. But on average, there's a bit of a difference. And when you get to the extremes and you think about the least agreeable people, the lowest people in agreeableness, they're almost all men. And that is one of the biggest reasons why men get into leadership positions because they, the tiny subset of people who are getting into those leadership positions are on the more typically on the more extreme end of being low in agreeableness and as a result they're more prepared to trample over whoever it takes to get to the top and that's a massive driver of the gender difference in terms of senior positions in in politics and business etc which says something a little bit about our system as opposed to uh, anything else well it says as much about the system we're operating in as it does anything else if if the system rewards um that and i think there are some societies in in the world where i mean they will and they will be probably more isolated um in terms of uh number as opposed to necessarily geographically but i'm thinking of um some very female um leadership dominated societies i think in bhutan um there's one there's a um a community in somewhere else in the middle east i believe which is largely a matriarchal society and i wonder whether they've found a different system where agreeableness and the lack of it isn't necessarily going to get you ahead. So something about anyway, rather than diverge into what is our system about, mm. um, it just it just made me think. Mm, that's fascinating. I wonder what that's saying us, telling us about the world we've created. 
And I think I, I think it's a really important point. I would just I would clarify one way of looking at it is when you talk about a system, it might sound like this is a system that someone has designed. And it's not really a system that someone has designed. It's the system that has evolved over many, many generations and many, many interactions in our capitalist society. So you might say, well, we we are living in a capitalist structure. And if we were in a different structure, different attributes may, may uh, come to the fore. But particularly in business, one of the reasons that low agreeableness makes you successful is because you are more effective at the things that make businesses successful. And you're more prepared to do stuff that is going to be successful, even if it pisses people off. Because so, people are employed to get the job done in that context. Yeah, or, or you're prepared to, you know, the, the kind of the classic sort of tyrant leader uh, of you know, Jeff Bezos, um, who will tear strips off anybody who doesn't do things exactly the way he says. He is definitionally extremely low in agreeableness because he has a very clear vision and he's prepared to trample over anything and not worry about hurting people's feelings to get that done. And so those, those attributes are the things that enable businesses to be successful. It's not that we as a society have said, well, we're going to, we're going to, prioritize people that are low agreeableness for some reason so, so I, think, yes. I think actually when you get into then politics i think it's actually different so i think that the system in politics and i'm not i'm not a political expert but what i observe as a you know 25 years into my voting life is the people that rise to the top in politics are there's no real measure of how effective they are at their job they're in terms of serving the population what they are effective at is winning votes and the kind of political uh machinations within westminster and so there's a disconnect there because they don't have to be effective out in the real world whereas if you're not effective as a business leader you don't last very long yeah and one could argue that somebody like margaret thatcher was probably low on agreeability um, very, low, very low yeah uh, but she had a very clear vision of what she had in mind for both her party, but also the country. So kind of two linked questions, I think. What's neuroticism or the other one? What's that? How's that show up in leadership? So um, good leaders typically will be lower in neuroticism. So you can think of neuroticism as kind of uh, tendency towards anxiety, tendency towards worry. Um, now, if you are if you're highly neurotic, it's crippling. You can't get anything done. If you are tending towards higher neuroticism than average, that could still work. If you're very high in conscientiousness, for example, which is the trait that means that you get you do what you say you're going to do and you and you follow through. So, if you worry a lot and you're conscientious in getting stuff done, maybe that will drive. A lot of things getting done. You could almost characterize that as kind of the insecure overachiever who has a lot of anxiety and worries a lot, and that drives them to do a lot of work and, and get things done. So, so that kind of bridges very closely to my second question, which is what role, and this is seen being seen and explored more presently in modern day leadership. Where does compassion then sort of sit in all of this to you both? So in personality trait terms, compassion is an element of, and I'm 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 not expert in this, so yeah. uh, forgive me if uh, no. people please correct me if I'm getting this wrong. But um, in personality trait terms, uh, being higher in agreeableness will lead you to extending more compassion, um, openness to experience. So that is, are you are you able to? take on new experiences and integrate them into your into your worldview effectively. And actually intellect is a subset of openness to experience. So if you're high, high in openness to experience, you're high in agreeableness, that will tend towards behaviors that we would describe as compassionate behaviors and empathy. 
And I guess you probably so, need to know in neuroticism as well, to an extent. Were you, yeah, were you asking, Graham, so we've got the definitional element from the traits perspective there. Mm -hmm. Were you also asking, what role does compassion, maybe as defined like that, play yeah. in leadership? Yeah. And what do we see? You know, we're talking about this idea of, you know, leadership dynamics, potentially male, and we'll bring that to that in a minute. That's where I was going to go next with the conversation. Because I had the privilege of seeing someone do their research work into the subject of compassion. And they argue that that's like the sixth trait that needs to be considered more now in today's workplace and in today's leadership. So, yeah, Jamie, it was to your second point is the what role could, you know, you've you've seen compassion in the workplace or you've seen lack of compassion in the, the workplace, I assume. And I wonder whether you, if you had any experience of that and what you think that means for leadership dynamics today. Uh, well, I have to admit, um, and I'm, I'm sitting here being educated in some of the ways in which we can look at these things as much as anything else. And it's, it's fascinating. With a question like that, I've clearly got my own experience beyond which there are blind spots. And I've done a fair amount of reading about some of these things. And the way my brain thinks and goes, when have I seen some ends, if it, if it, if, let's say compassion is a spectrum of there's an awful lot of it on show, there's none of it on show. How effective are people that I've exposed, been exposed to, have seen, heard about, who demonstrate consistently um, a lot of compassion? And how does that compare to the effectiveness from a leadership in business perspective of those who I've experienced who show none or little or none? And I have to admit, I can't think of that many sustainably effective leaders who have got more out of the people around them than simply just the sum of the parts for any length of time who weren't able to be compassionate or to create a tone of compassion within the organization that they worked with or worked for or led, not only for each other, but also for the ecosystem in which they operated. That is their consumers, their other business customers, their suppliers, their partners, the communities in which they operated, the people whose uh, salaries they're paying and the families who are part of that ecosystem. When I've seen people um, show little or no compassion, people then often walk with their, you know, choose with their feet. So no compassion in a workplace tends to have higher turnover. No compassion in leadership tends to have people who are driven to the point of either burnout um, or um, a lack of real commitment to whatever purpose or ambition the organization has beyond the bare minimum to get the extrinsic reward that they signed up for initially. That's enough um, to offset the pain of a non-compassionate environment um, beyond which they tend to go, right, up with this, I will no longer put. So I think the, the role is, for me, uh, of compassion, one where it is an enhancer the more compassion that can be integrally part of an environment role modeled by leaders, um, the more effective the organization has. What does that compassion need to now encompass, therefore? It's not just about making sure that you're all right because you look a bit gloomy today. It is compassion to perspectives, to diversity of thinking, to compassion to diversity of experience, um, willingness to listen. Um, and therefore, I think you were saying, that openness to new experience i think all of those come in my mind synonymous with um, authentic compassion and the more of that that exists the more likely people are to collaborate be innovative share ideas um, with the ultimate balancing act being how much is too much compassion where ultimately people just worry about how everybody else feels rather than sometimes just getting stuff done yeah, Jamie, you've question. hit on the question that was for me, which was uh, the question, the question that was coming up for me when you were speaking then was, how are we defining compassion? And I'm glad you brought that piece in at the end about actually compassion isn't about giving everybody you work with a hug every day and making sure they've got a cup of tea and that you're listening to all of their worries. Sometimes, I mean, there's a the classic phrase: you've got to be cruel to be kind. Sometimes compassion is being very clear and direct with somebody about what they need to do 
I brought, I use sometimes in my, uh, uh, some of the training I do, I use um, some videos of Gordon Ramsay, who um, is a useful sort of almost caricature of a leader because he's so extreme. But he will have, there's loads of, obviously loads of clips of him being very blunt and direct with people mm-hmm. because he's judged that in the moment that is the thing that is going to help them get to a next level of performance. And there's loads of other clips of him being really gentle with people where the blunt and direct approach is going to not, would knock them off. And uh, I'm sitting here wondering whether that first version of being really blunt and direct with somebody that needs it, does that fit within your definition of compassion? Or is that a different thing? It's a great question. Um, on on the surface of it, you could take perhaps a showreel of Gordon Ramsay and say, well, he's one of the most brutal bullies in a workplace ever, but that's the showreel version. But depends on how people around him uh, then either delete or distort any of the other evidence of what was his intent, what was the overall ambition. Given his experience, has he seen that the, that approach has really made a difference to snap people out of either inertia that was hurting themselves ultimately and making them less successful than they could have been. So he's seen beyond something and that was the tool that he's used in order for that breakthrough to be achieved, um, which is doesn't make a nice highlights reel, but actually is one of the reasons why those observable traits uh, start to emerge. I would therefore say, depending on how, how wide you threw the net of what do I need to include in my consideration of the action itself being compassionate ultimately um, will help you then decide. But I don't think there's a very clear, simple definition of um, what is a compassionate action unless you understand a lot of the context. Yeah, so you can't observe an action or a behavior out of context and know whether or not that is the behavior of a compassionate leader. Not for certainty, no. I don't think so. I think the other question that's coming up for me is what is the what is a leader trying to achieve if a leader wants to be more compassionate what are they what are they trying trying to achieve and how do they manage the trade off because they could and so take the Gordon Ramsay example what he is trying to do is turn somebody into a better chef for the benefit of the restaurant for the benefit of the people eating food for the benefit of the team around that person not necessarily for the benefit of that person and what is going to serve them in that moment or through their life unless their life goals are perfectly aligned with the goal of running a more effective restaurant so is he being compassionate to that person or is he using a tool to trick that person into behaving in a way that suits the organizational goals and how as a leader are we supposed to manage this trade-off because as a leader you're sitting there going well i've got a bunch of organizational goals that we need to achieve and i've got people around me and my role as a leader is to develop and support and encourage and lead those people to achieve the organizational goals but sometimes what that person needs as a human being is going to be not perfectly aligned with those organizational goals and sometimes completely diametrically opposed to it. So how do we make those compassion trade-offs? Just, just listening to you both. Has anyone ever heard of Heron's six categories of intervention? No, I think I've heard you mention it before. You've heard but me I mention would... it, Jamie. I know you have yeah. because we talked about it before. But because... I'm going to pop it on screen so we can both look at it, but I'm going to read it out for the listeners. So um, they make sense. But so this chap called Heron from the seventies or eighties sort of came up with this idea that there are six categories of intervention that someone can make and the style with which that intervention can happen. And, you know, he, he grouped them into two buckets, authoritative and facilitative authoritative types of intervention can be prescriptive where you might direct the person by giving them advice and direction informative seeks to give knowledge and meaning to the other person by giving them an instruction confronting challenging a behavior or attitude of the other person by direct feedback which i always feel gordon ramsay falls into that bucket in what we typically know him as 
The facilitative styles can be cathartic, where you help other a person to express and overcome their powerful thoughts and emotions. And that's where empathy tends to come in. The catalytic, where you help another person maybe reflect, discover and learn, ask questions of them. Or supportive, where you build up the other person's confidence. Now, as you talk about, as we talk about the subject of compassion, I think I'm with you, Derry, that using any one of these six ways to intervene in someone's thinking so they take a new direction is being compassionate. If the results they're currently getting aren't meeting the outcomes, objectives or expectations they're looking to get. So I think sometimes if a leader, lead, a leader's got potentially six different approaches they could use in one moment that ultimately could be argued to demonstrating compassion to someone where they are because they're helping them shift. I still well, think that's what I call that Back to the personality traits piece that we were talking about. Mm. The lower in agreeableness you are, the naturally, the more naturally you will sway to the first three the authoritative ones and if you are very high in agreeableness you'll naturally move more to the facilitative uh intervention types i suspect Hmm. um which then leads you to the conclusion if all of those types can be compassionate then compassion is possible across the spectrum of agreeableness for example even if it doesn't necessarily feel like it to that individual Hmm. Like sometimes the hardest message could be the one that changes someone's life. Is yeah. a thought that comes up to me in that moment. Jamie, you had a point just then, I thought. Yeah, and I was thinking that the context bit for me is still a really vitally important one. Uh, and I'm, I'm only thinking in almost extremes and, and outliers here. I could imagine somebody who has low agreeable traits who recognize that if they just bang on a motivational drum to get everybody really excited about the prospect of what's going on and the reward that may be associated with them achieving more. You could, on the surface of it, look at that as a supportive type of intervention, but it's done without any real interest in the the well-being of the, uh, the human beings in that system or that part of the organization or whatever it might be. So I think there is an element of the context, which if you were to take a really rounded picture of this, go, could you ever objectively really define what's that landscape where compassion can fall? Context does play an important role. Um, But bringing it back to the agreeableness then brings me, my mind back into the the, the question around the gender, actually. Um, And just bear with me a second. So if, if we're saying that actually, no matter where you are on the agreeable trait scale, non lots or somewhere in between more reminiscent female at one end male at the other end um in terms of overall aggregate average um it shows it it suggests to me that compassion can be something that can exist irrespective of gender in fact it could it could exist um depending on context just as much even if on the surface of it, some of the actions appear to be less agreeable. However, however, and this is the big however, if people then mimic just the actions, for example, if everybody started behaving like Gordon Ramsay in the kitchen, um, of, of what their observable behavior uh, becomes without the context, without the intent, without the ambition, does that create an environment which becomes toxic? And if everybody only copied the what we call the extreme compassionate end, the listening, the nurturing, the wanting to be there, never wanting to do anything to to upset anybody, um, without understanding that at times that has got to be combined with some harder messages, some clearer, more objective um, direction. Maybe perhaps a moment where you actually, literally, sort of almost metaphorically dragging somebody through the pain barrier so that they can experience um, what they're capable of achieving. Then you lose some of that as well. Um, so it, it suggests to me that the feminine trait, or the, the typically feminine trait versus the typically masculine trait, can be equally as compassionate, which could be equally valuable as a leader um, a characteristic, um, but isn't as straightforward as just mimicking behavior. 
certainly no, observable. I think, the, I think that's a really good point, Jamie. And the it's the the point at which you can tip into uncompassionate leadership, for example, to take that example. So if you are low in agreeableness and your compassion is about saying what needs to be said and being brave enough to say what needs to be said and being strong enough to say what needs to be said and and not worrying about how that how it lands how the person feels because you're telling them what they need to hear like that kind of low agreeableness trait that can easily slip into tyrant and bullying and a lack of compassion versus the other end where you are more of that facilitative intervention style and you're trying to really listen hard to the person and understand everything they're coming from and you're really high in agreeableness um and you're helping them work through issues that can slip into an overly um i don't even know what the word is but uh, a a a lack of willingness to deliver the honest messages to that person so that you're protecting them from ever feeling uh like they're being given hard truths and if you try if you protect them too much then they're never going to develop they're never going to learn and uh and, and progress and so that there's different risks at the different ends of that spectrum and so i think if your goal is to be a compassionate leader then understanding where you are on that agreeableness trait and everything else really but where you are on that particular trait and what your risks are of slipping into a lack of compassion, I think is an important thing to dial in as a, as a leader. The other thing that's coming up for me, the other thought that's coming up for me is uh, as a, as a leader, you're running, you're, you're leading a team of people to try and achieve a goal. And the time frame over which that goal needs to be achieved may impact the optimal leadership style. So if you've got a very intense short project goal that you're trying to get to then you can't necessarily afford to be overly compassionate other than unless everybody's bought into the thing that matters to me is to achieve this project goal and I want to be told exactly what to do so that we can I can get it done and we get we get to that goal and that is the necessary leadership style for this environment versus trying to build over the very long term so you've got a time frame element, you've got a an organizational goals element. So if you've got an organization, like the business that I run, for example, we're not overly focused on profit and growth. We're, fo- we're focused on the experience and creating a working environment that people can tap into that fits with their lifestyle and their other priorities in a way that is financially sustainable. And as a result, a more gentle, compassionate style of leadership can work in that environment. If you're in an organization where the goal of the organization is explicitly uh, hyper growth and maximizing profit and return to shareholders, then a different leadership style may be, may be appropriate. And the challenge there is to identify whether the people in your team are genuinely aligned with that organizational vision and accepting of your leadership style together. Uh, so there's all of this is really contextual i think so let's bring it to the if we bring it back to the context of our original question will having a king make a difference to men in this country the first thing i'd observe you you said leaders are often employed into roles let's let's call out the first differentiator he wasn't employed into the role he was born into it yeah king charles But I don't know about you, and I'll be I'll hold my cards up. The reason why I brought compassion up is because I notice him to be a compassionate person towards the causes he's interested in. You know, he's been a staunch environmentalist his entire career. Right. First question, what do you think the traits are of King Charles that men could pick up on and bring into their way of doing things if they were leaders? Traits as in the five core traits that five core traits just... that I mentioned before or things that you would associate with when you think of him. 
certainly compassionate would be one of the, the top characteristics or traits that I've associated with him. Um, perhaps maybe less about human beings, funnily enough, in terms of individual family members, because it's very easy to believe what you read in the press and having grown up through the, uh, the, the whole history of uh, Charles's relationships and, and children's lives. Some of that, I think, would be uh, at times on the less compassionate end of the spectrum, potentially, depending on who you believe. Um, but for society, for the uh, environment, for sustainability, for equality, I, I, I sense in him, or he represents to me, something that is strongly compassionate. Interestingly, as I was saying it, thinking, and that slightly is at odds with what I might have traditionally seen as a um, as a um, a male leadership figure. So I'm wondering whether there's something going on there as well. Um, so compassion would definitely be a strong one for me. What about you, Derry? The word I, that's popping into my mind is conscientiousness. That I judge that he is very committed to doing the things that he's said he'll do. To your point, Graham, about his commitment to his environmental causes, for example, that he will get those things done. Um, I do. I'm. I don't really sense any particular masculine qualities versus feminine qualities in him versus his mother. Um, I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are personality differences, but I don't know that they are kind of gender differences. And I think Graham, you make a great point about him being born into that role, which is sort of why I raised the figurehead point at the start. Is like, is that an aspirational figurehead when you could never achieve? that role um so yeah conscientiousness i think and uh which again is an attribute of people that are successful in in their careers what about you graham well uh, i suppose what i'm pondering is that because we've just noticed a couple of things that are different let's say to say some of those models of leadership that we talked about earlier i'm wondering whether subtly he may start shifting the narrative for young men coming into leadership roles in some ways because he is placed in a figurehead position by the media by society and yeah he's not leading the country as such because we know that happens to you know he's you know the royal family have indicated for the UK Parliament and the House of Lords should do that. But I wonder whether because of his figurehead status and maybe with William as well, you know, the next in line, they're considering how they might show up in the context of the influence they could have on men in this world. Hmm. That may shift the leadership, they may shift the leadership dynamic that men bring into the workplace, which I think needs to change personally. Yeah. Now, if that was, I, I, I love that, and if that hypothesis, let's say, it's a hypothesis there, which is, is here's a figurehead, but representing something which perhaps is a combination of simply which gender you would associate with them, and maybe whatever inherent association you would have with the gender bit. But what then he represents from a characteristics perspective, that package creates a different kind of persona role model to make it okay and acceptable, and indeed. Um, entirely viable to look up and at that as a that that is something i could identify with and now know it's okay to do as opposed to let's say a donald trump you know, you know, same gender sorry same gender but representing everything that you probably expect from the worst ends of the toxic masculinity type spectrum equally then we've got something like a margaret thatcher the hypothetical hypothetical reverse in some ways somebody who is a female you know, a mother a, a wife um, very successful in her career, demonstrated it's almost counter counterintuitive gender characteristics, which then made it okay for very strong, very determined, very visionary, perhaps less agreeable female role characteristics to be something that people could go, wow, and particularly for younger girls to go, that's okay as well. So I don't just have to look at my mum who's in the kitchen or my granny who's been in the kitchen. But it's it's okay to be 
a figurehead like that as well. And I wonder, so that combination of things there, um, sort of making me think, is the question here, although it may not matter that the king is now the head of the country to men, the fact that he is a man in a figurehead role displaying those characteristics is really important. Because what I think he's that's doing a really is really interesting conclusion. Because yeah. right at the start of this conversation, I said, "Oh, well, men. It won't make that much difference to men because they've they've got lots of role models." But actually, they don't have lots of role models that display compassion. Uh, compassion, yeah. Um, uh, in, the way, in, all... the, kind of in the classic, like a slightly gentle version of compassion. That you know, we talked about different different flavors of compassion, but they don't have that many role models, male role models that display those characteristics i mean they certainly don't i'm not i'm not a big fan of politicians as you may have picked up they certainly don't in most of the political classes um and business leaders as well you know, as we've talked about tend to be lower in agreeableness now if you're born to be king you don't have to worry about your progression and trampling over people to get there so he's displayed an awful lot of patience alongside that compassion. And I think it's a really interesting conclusion for me. It's really good food for thought of how will that filter. It will filter very slowly. But he's likely to be on the throne for 20 years or more. So, Yeah. yeah. Well, I was going to say, and then, I, and then I think, okay, so if we were to look at that and say, well, what might be really interesting things to study? Would the dynamics in... Believe it or not, a quick quiz. How many current countries have a female elected head of state? The number's really low, but I don't know the number. You might be surprised then. And this is either president, prime minister. Oh, okay, right. Okay, we're getting out there. Okay, right. Yeah. This is this is this is elected. How many current? And this was true of 20 minutes ago on Wikipedia. So it may not be entirely accurate. Let's just give Wikipedia some credit. It's definitely got Jacinda not being part of that list. So how many current... You've got the Finnish, the ones I know of, the Finnish lady. The head of Finland. Derry, do you have a number? How many? This is, could take us a long time. Uh, are we talking about out of the 209 countries? Yeah, or I was just going around all 209 oh, in my head. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't going to list them. Out. I mean, that would be a hell of a pub quiz, wouldn't it? List, list all 209 state leaders. Uh, I would guess 30 or 40 globally. You're actually, I'm unless I've miscounted it, it is, I think, right now 30. 30. 30 and some of the, the, the those on the list I recommend anybody to go and have a little look because it will surprise you actually how many more perhaps than you thought and indeed the geographical distribution of those they're not clustered in one particular region now many of these will have had a female elected head of state for the first time and I wonder whether therefore what we might be seeing is although maybe not so much in the UK and clearly the filtering down of the king who's compassionate patient conscientious to give a different different type of role modeling of what it is to be on the masculine end of the gender spectrum, whatever you choose to be, it may take some time. But if you were then to say, well, does it have a difference? Does it make a difference? I think it did make a difference to certainly my wife in her aspirations when she saw Margaret Thatcher and the Queen. I wonder whether for these other 30 countries, it will make a societal change accelerate slightly as a result of that, because there are some very strong but very compassionate women that I've heard about on this list um, from a global profile perspective. And I think that when coupled with the fact that businesses now are seeing the benefits of having a very diverse board, leadership team and leaders, set of leaders, I think you might be right. We're all on the cusp of what makes the leaders that need to be present in order to drive success and the characteristics of those leaders. There is definitely a shift happening. Oh. And I think for me, just leading, leaving this conversation with the curiosities that have been sparked, I think it's time people started to look into what are those shifts that are taking place? Where have they originated from? What's the context that's moving? Because if leaders can be more aware and 
subconsciously and consciously practicing some of these things that we've talked about in the context of which they lead it could have a really profound impact on what's achieved both personally and organizationally which is where i'm leaving from this oh. are you, where are you leaving the conversation derry today um yeah i'm reflecting on how that compassion may flow down and I'm left with a whole bunch of things that would be really interesting to explore around the personality traits of those 30 odd female leaders. Um, it's a whole different topic really, but so that's, uh, the, that's another podcast. Yeah. Let's make sure we add that to our list. <laughs> yeah. Um, And I think, I think, but you'll find your kind of wrap up there, Graham, has triggered one final thought for me, which is um, we as a civilization, as a race, humanity, have been phenomenally successful. And the things that we have done to get us to this point over decades and centuries have been very successful. And no doubt there, you know, there would, could have been some of the optimal path that may have got us to a different place, but. Um, I think often the world is sort of characterized as being in a disaster state. And I just don't think that's true. So what's interesting for me is we've been successful to date using the systems that we've used. Those, the way that people are approaching those systems is starting to change. And is there a shift in the rules of the game as to what it takes to be a successful leader or, or not? And are we really, are we, are we sure about that? And uh, how do we know if we are sure? So that's great questions. Ponder spinning around in my head. Cool. Thanks, Jamie. Where are you leaving today? Um, uh, with another skip of my step, I think in my mind, I feel like I've I've answered the question. First time we've ever had one of these kind of podcasts where I've got yeah, I've, I think I've got an answer to that question. I think it will make a difference, but not just because it's the king there's something else as well and there's something else that has a profound either gradual or in some cases it could be quite dramatic impact on perceptions and then modeling of behaviors and so on and so forth that so on and so forth and that that could that could and should happen in workplaces if it's happening in society if, if the theory goes um you know the figurehead uh exists in both uh, types of contexts um I, I'm, I'm finding myself going away full of questions and listening to Derry as well. Thank you for those. There's some great questions in there. Um, I'd love to know what other people think about this and whether they have a different perspective on um, the the role that gender plays in determining how things might shift in people's perceptions and then then behaviours in society. Um, the one thing that actually really stands out for me is that I think gender stereotyping and any progression down that route is a dangerous and damaging influence on society. Um, as we've just described, some of the most important facets of some of the figureheads we've talked about, and certainly those I've worked with and seen in organizations, are when the stereotyping isn't true. People play against the stereotype that has some of the most profound impact. Um, and therefore, that's that's a route that concerns me. Um, in terms of how that starts to influence our society or it has been influencing it in the last few years. So, Graham, that's that's where I'm at. Where are you at, Graham? So con so I was so concentrating on facilitating the conversation. I haven't thought about it, so give me a second. Um <laughs> I like what you said there, Jamie. Just that summary around gender stereotypes and the impact. And what I what I like is that that it's almost it's sorry it has renewed my conscious confidence that gender stereotyping is dangerous. 
And it probably goes back, for me, I take it back to that story I gave of childhood. What if we started leading from a place of gender appreciation or cultural history appreciation or, or characteristic appreciation and then working with it? That's where I'm curious about what leaders could do in the context. Um, and I think, yeah, the idea of having a king could provide subtly some figurehead-like direction for people that they either lean into or they challenge because ultimately they've got to lead in the context of which they're, they're operating. below and we'll be happy there to listen